0: This is a podcast from Rover. Well, Carla Muller is a principal consultant and agricultural economist with Perrin Ag, and she's been investigating ways for farmers to fund land use on their farms and, I guess, how to pay for it as well. Now, typically things like riparian plantings, they don't make as much cash return like, say, adding more sheep. So how can they be funded? Well, biodiversity credits is an option, and Carla's here to tell us a bit more about this. Nice to talk to you, Carla. How are you? Good, thanks, Dom. How are you? Not too bad at all, not too bad. Um, So let's start at the very beginning. What is a biodiversity credit, and are they really a thing yet in the marketplace?
1: Yeah, good question. So, yes, they're a thing. We currently are seeing some people privately trading them in New Zealand. Um, we don't yet have a public market, although that is definitely on the radar of the government, and we've seen them release a biodiversity credit document for discussion. Um, we are seeing them come through. So one one good example is in Mangatau Tree Sanctuary Mountain um, in Waikato, where they've sold biodiversity credits through a company called Ecos. To a private buyer, um, and that's funding, essentially, the conservation management of um, native and important biodiversity
0: areas. Right, so is it, uh, is it kind of work like a carbon credit or something like that? Is that kind of the idea?
1: Yeah, so a public market would kind of work like that. However, what we're talking about here is probably not selling the um, actual plants like in, like we do in a carbon market. We're more talking about selling the restoration and preservation activities. So it might be the pest control, it might be the ongoing fencing or maintenance of an area. So we're not selling the biodiversity, we're selling the... I guess, the activity required
0: to protect that. Okay, so that's a definite distinction then um, Now, as I said at the start you've been investigating ways for farmers uh, to, you know, fund land use on their farms uh, What did your study set out to do? I guess that's it in the nutshell but I guess I'm asking you to slightly expand on that, Carla. Yeah, thanks So first
1: of all, I guess, a huge thanks to the Island and Water National Science Challenge for funding this um, and GHA for being our co authors. What we really wanted to do was essentially find novel or new ways to finance, essentially as you said, land use change that has a high capital cost or a lower return. We were kind of looking for that, you know, silver bullet or magic bunny tree if you like, but, you know, farmers would have found that if it if it did exist and we didn't come up with anything that was, you know, gonna save, save everyone. So what we did do was Talk to as many people as possible. You know, nothing, nothing like getting a wide range of
0: views. Mm-hmm.
1: And we came up with a list of about seventeen ideas that could potentially help um, support farmers through some of the changes that are coming at them, or that the community is really after.
0: Right. Okay. And obviously, the uh, biodiversity credit is one of those.
1: Yeah, it was definitely the, the preferred option. We looked at other things like the role of sustainability-linked loans, which are getting a bit of press at the moment. Um, the idea of you know using cash-linked collectives to make um, projects more attractive to um, philanthropic funds and international impact investors. Um, and we, you know, we looked at some of the traditional traditional funding, you know, bank debt, um, equity partners, and how they all kind of performed against a set of criteria like the certainty of positive environmental outcomes the returns to investors and the control of assets too, right? You know a big challenge with equity financing is that farmers like to retain control of their land, so that was really important to them as well.
0: Mm, yeah, which makes total sense. Um so let's look at this uh, biodiversity credit then and'm uh, just trying to get my my head around it. I'm sure other people are as well. Um, how special does the biodiversity have to be then to be deserving of a credit, do you think? because I mean you could probably use a number of examples to qualify or not. I don't know, how do, how do you think it might work?
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely a fan, as I said, of selling um, the effort and cost required to protect or restore biodiversity. And the reason I like that is that it's a auditable, transparent, you know, it's a, it's a unit you can actually price and sell. So, you know, how many hours did it take to do pest control in that area? Of or something like that. It's actually a tangible unit, whereas biodiversity isn't a unit. It's not like carbon moving is actually a an... I think biodiversity can be everything from species to habitat to ecosystem. So it's not a it's not a thing we can sell, but we can definitely um, sell or get funding for the effort and cost required to protect it. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't need to be particularly special. Um, it does seem like we are seeing most biodiversity credits at the moment kind of play in the ecosystem habitat space. There's a new kind of group, Cardin Z, doing some around um, pest control. Mm. Uh, but really they can span all of those, so everything from habitat to species presentation, just depending on what the what the seller wants, until we see a public market kind of create a, a uniform metric or unit, which we haven't yet got.
0: Right, but what you're saying there is effectively it's got to be measurable.
1: I think so. And the reason I say that is because you're selling it to someone, right? So they've got to know what they're buying. Exactly. You've got to know what you're selling. And, you know, to prevent that whole greenwashing space, it's got to be transparent and it's got to be auditable.
0: Yeah, because that's where you could get into sort of tricky areas, couldn't it? So there's going to have to be a heck of a lot of groundwork done in terms of actually nutting out what is the thing that is measurable and how do we measure it, et cetera, and then have that sort of uniform across the board. Because, as you say, no one wants to, buy, you know, trade, buy, sell, Whatever a commodity that you that that's a little wishy washy for lack of a better phrase.
1: Exactly, you're right. No one wants to sell that. No one wants to buy it.
0: Yeah, so you'll have no market if it's not um you know if it's not up to scratch from the very very start. So oh, obviously then the system will have to have checks and balances, right? Have you um done any sort of looking into that?
1: Yeah, we didn't we didn't go into detail looking at any of the specific metric um. Well, financing options that we assessed in the study. We, we noted that there is a lot of people working in the biodiversity space in New Zealand. But what we did do is, is you know, broadly discuss what's kind of going on and what people are looking at. So, yes, we do need checks and balances. And probably the kind of big considerations, um, for, me, for me at least, is where are we actually selling these credits to? Um, mm. There is, essentially, what we're doing is replacing land that would have otherwise generated export revenue, into something that's not producing export revenue. So selling credits offshore will replace that. However, the flip side of that is that, you know, people are uncomfortable generally around selling biodiversity credits um, in an offsetting context, because are we really trying to offset a negative impact somewhere with a positive impact, or are we actually trying to modify our behaviours and improve biodiversity at a a global scale? So there's a lot of discussion still on, on those kind of, I guess, um, philosophical questions to be resolved. And that, you know, that being worked through. Some of the private stuff is just getting on and doing it, which is awesome to see. But we do need to be really careful, as I said, around greenwashing um, the risk of perverse outcomes. You know, ETS itself has had mixed reviews, depending on where you sit and so we've got to be really careful that anything we design for a public market doesn't end up in that situation or if it does we're prepared to actually revise or adapt as we go
0: yeah the offsetting versus behavioral is definitely the well but one of the big talking points with ETS isn't it so it's it's the same and um you know landscape effectively in terms of that argument that that you're looking at here with biodiversity
1: yes exactly and you know globally i would say that the at the moment, people are tending towards not wanting it to be an offset. Um, but the challenge for us in New Zealand is because we're so heavily reliant on that export income from primary production. If we're not selling overseas or if we don't have international buyers, what does that mean for our economy as a country? Mm. Not, not saying that every international buyer would be offsetting. Um, but how would you distinguish those who are looking to offset versus those who are doing it purely for altruistic reasons or business responsibility?
0: So is there any other countries in the world doing this or something similar?
1: Yes, there is. And um, they're all kind of at different stages of their journey. So Australia's kind of got some stuff on the burn. They've released some some discussion documents as well. Um, Probably internationally, I would say it's more private markets setting up and doing stuff rather than than countries as a whole. Mm. but, yeah, everyone seems to be kind of in this space, and I suspect what we'll see is we'll see it move pretty quickly. Um, so in the self questions, you know, how fast can New Zealand move? How fast could we get a market up and running? Or is there is there benefit in going through a private market, you know? Do our leading farms and, and cooperatives want to do something on their own? Um, maybe. Mm.
0: Yeah, well, that's exactly, yeah, those are all options on the table for sure. So then you mentioned the uh, government before that they've got some sort of discussion document or out in the the sphere at the moment. Um, But when we look at that, I mean, you know, how far down the road are we? Is it just that discussion document? I mean, it seems inevitable that it will play out in some shape or form, this biodiversity credit idea, um, but, you know, in terms of what you sort of, or how you assess it at the moment, Carla, we, where do you think we are in terms of that? Are we just in the infancy of it?
1: Yeah, public, public market-wise, we are. So the government released their consultation document I think, mid-July. Right. And it closes on the 3rd of November. Okay. And the idea, the idea behind that is at least my understanding of the government's thinking, is that it would complement a national policy statement for Indigenous biodiversity, which we've seen progressing. Ah, oh, yes, right. It would kind of sit complementary to that, but even I'm not clear on how they would link or not link the biodiversity credit scheme to the ETS. Um, obviously, that conversation needs to happen, and I don't yet know how it will. Um, certainly, I think that the government is actively looking at this. I know that they are um, taking taking information from experts and doing work with experts on this what i hope is that the conversations are actually cross-cutting i hope they're you know involving that perspective from landowners who will actually be doing this from the financing sector as to how this might actually look um, when you consider things from a business perspective and a lending perspective um, from the conservation sector because we you know want to all work towards the same goal here and equally those who might be investors right if we're going to design something we need to have everyone involved in the room designing it together.
0: Well, the cynic in me says, don't hold your breath. However, you've done some clearly done some good work and good thinking around this, Carla, and uh, you know we need um, uh, people to look into it and see how exactly it is going to work and provide options and solutions, I guess, uh, when it comes to this sort of thing. So thank you so much indeed for explaining it to us in terms of the work you've done on it. And uh, look, we'll be keeping a close eye on it because, as I said before, I think it's probably inevitable. It just remains to be seen what form and shape it takes. So thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Not a problem. And I guess, you know, the only other thing I'd like to say is that, you know, as a result of the report and the work that we did, farmers do need to consider access to funding. Um, and I hope that they do consider and look at ideas outside of traditional debt funding. Um, have a look at the report, see the other ideas in there, and if there's anything that speaks to them, you know, talk to their trusted advisors, um, because there, there are other ways to finance things out there, and hopefully
0: we can get the right money into the farmers' hands to do the right thing. Can people access the report online?
1: Yes, so they can access the report and there's also a handy infographic so if you don't want to sit there and read hundreds of pages. (laughs) (laughs) And both of those can either be found on the Our Land and Water website or on the
0: Perinag website. Our Land, Water or Perinag, very good. Carla Muller, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dom. Well, if you liked that, you'll love this. Subscribe to Rex wherever you get your podcasts from and follow us on social media as well and get all the latest rural content at rexonline.co.nz.